You're listening to TIP. And so if you have kids, you need life insurance. If you don't have kids and if no one depends on your income. So if you're a 25-year-old teacher and you have no kids and don't have like a sick brother or something who depends on your income to live, you don't need life insurance because if you die, no one starves. Like On today's episode, we bring back fan favorite Jeremy Schneider. Jeremy is the founder of Personal Finance Club, which was created to give simple, unbiased information on how to win with money and help you become financially independent. During our conversation, we cover how he personally is handling the recent stock market volatility, why he doesn't try to time the market, what his investment portfolio allocation looks like today, how investors should think about bonds, who does and doesn't need life insurance, money hacks he recommends so you can access cash early in your retirement accounts, and much more. With that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with the one and only Jeremy Schneider. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today we bring Jeremy Schneider back onto the show. Jeremy, third time back on. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Clay. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here for the third time. Amazing. Now, Jeremy, at the time of this recording, the S&P 500 is down around 15%. And I'm sure some people are worried, okay, what's going to happen this year? We got all these things with Russia and Ukraine, and we're approaching bear market territory. When I log on to Twitter, all I see is very low investor sentiment with the expectation of things only going lower and you know, potentially entering the next financial crisis. How are you handling this recent volatility in the stock market? I'll tell you. I'll tell you, I'll list every single trade I've made in response to the rising rates and the falling market and the Ukraine and the investor uncertainty. Here's the list, the entire list of trades I've made. None. I'm doing nothing because these types of market pullbacks are expected. They're part of investing. If you want a guaranteed return, you can put your money in a savings account and get 0.5%. But if you want to be more aggressive and get 10% returns over long periods of time, you are signing up for these. But like the deal is you don't get to pull out. You don't get to cash out. And if you try to make tricky moves to avoid these macroeconomic situations, you're much more likely to hurt yourself than help yourself. And so like since 1950, I think there's been 37 market pullbacks of 10% or more. And the previous, or there's been 38, including this one, and the previous 37 have all resulted in the market breaking all-time record highs. The average length of the crash from peak to trough has been about six months and we're four and a half months in. So does that mean we're one and a half months from being done? Nobody knows. In fact, like you said, we're down 15%. We were actually down 18% three days ago and the market's up 3% in the last three days. And so maybe the lowest the market will ever be again for the rest of time was three days ago. That's possible. It happens all the time. The market is always hitting all-time lows that we'll never see again because the market generally trends up. But we don't know. It could keep going down for another year. It could be done today. We don't know. But what I do know is if you hold for decades, you're going to see that massive power of compound growth. And if you start trying to time the market and jumping in and out, it's much more likely to hurt you than help you. In theory, I would expect an environment of rising rates to put downward pressure on the valuation of stocks as stocks are the present value of those earnings and free cash flows. But markets are fluid and they adjust to the expectations of what interest rates will be in the future as well. So with that, I'm curious if you know how stocks have performed in other periods of rising rates and if investors should be worried about you know this 
environment that we're currently in. So that's like a very smart, detailed analysis of the value of stocks. And you're right, where when rates go up, then companies are less likely to be able to invest and they're less likely to grow going forward or whatever. But the problem is, as soon as you know that, that has already been priced into the share price of these stocks for at least as long as anyone else has known it, and probably as long as anyone has predicted it, right? And so like one of those sayings is like, buy on rumor, sell on news, because the price of the stocks today aren't based on the value of the companies today. It's based on the expectations of the sum total of public human knowledge going forward. And so by the time we can make a statement like, you know, the the rising rates is going to depress the price of stocks going forward, the prices are already at that point lower. They're already at that lower expectation, which is what we experienced. And like you can kind of see that in 2020, like the most recent like big market crash. If you think this 15% drop is bad, in 2020, we saw a 34% drop in like a month. It was crazy. It was like the sharpest and steepest drop in history. But when the market was dropping, COVID cases were virtually non-existent in the US. Supply chains were fine. That was all an expectation. And then when COVID got really, really bad, the market was super, super high because the expectation was, okay, this is kind of the worst of it. Now we're going to get through it. And so if you were like trying to buy and sell based on how bad COVID actually was, you would have sold super low and like lost all your money and then like waited. And then you would have missed the entire run up as COVID got worse. And so the same thing is happening here. And if you go back and look over history at all the different periods of time, you can slice and dice in a million different ways. You can look at high rates and low rates. You can look at before the crash and after the crash. And the thing is, it's basically random. you know. There's no system that you can put in place. Like, okay, every time the rates are low, buy. And every time the rates are high, sell. There's no system you can do. In fact, any random time you look forward 10 or 20 years, it returns about 10% per year for the next couple of decades, as I expect it will this time. And if there ever is a pattern that emerges, like sometimes I hear something like, oh, in September, the market's low. As soon as that pattern emerges... The market adjusts and then the pattern ceases to happen going forward because it, you know the efficiency of the market fills in. So I know it's like I'm the boring index fund buy and hold guy, but I'm going to keep beating this drum because it keeps being true. Because when you try to get tricky, it's more likely to hurt you than help you. Are you only invested in stocks then? I know you talk about potentially allocating towards bonds as well, but do you just take the approach that stocks over the long run are the best performing asset class? So that's what you stick to? I own some bonds too, 41. So I'm kind of on the older end of young still. And I think in my portfolio is like 10% bonds right now or something. Generally, from a very broad perspective, I invest in assets that appreciate and provide income. And the two major classes are stocks and bonds as one and investment real estate as the other. And so if you buy and hold those two things and they pay you income while you hold them and you hold them for long periods of time, you'll be very wealthy. That's like the long and short of it. Everything else is kind of like fine tuning, like what's your asset allocation of stocks versus bonds, what kind of real estate you're doing. And so, yeah, that's why I do broad strokes right now. I'm like 90% stocks, 10% bonds. And then I have some kind of like passive real estate investing. One idea I've kind of grappled with is kind of stock valuations. The S&P 500 has had an average annual return of over 13% over the past 10 years, which is quite remarkable and on the higher end of historical returns. So I'm curious if there's ever a point where you might consider other asset classes, call it bonds or maybe even commodities or even more real estate. In theory, your expected future returns are lower if you're paying a historically high valuation for those stocks, which means that there could be better opportunities elsewhere. So I'm curious what your idea is around that. 
you know, the 13 year thing is kind of a cherry pick time frame. If you do 20 years, it's more like 9%. If you do 40 years, it's like 11%. But these are all good numbers, right? Like you can't, other than four months, you can't pick a time frame where the, the market returns like a big negative number, right? Any 10 period or 10 year period or longer. And so, you know, my answer to that is kind of the same as the answer to the rising rates thing, which is, you know, we don't know what if the value is too high or too low because any individual like you or me or any person or a company, we're all dealing with a subset of the total sum total of public human knowledge. And it's really a difficult pill to swallow to admit that you say, I have to say like, based on my deep understanding of the markets and the research I've done, the books I've read and the analysis I've done, I'm like operating at a disadvantage, but we are, we all are because no one has as much as everyone combined and everyone combined is what's pricing the market. That's like the efficient market theory. And so when you say stocks overvalued from your perspective, maybe, but there might be someone else who's done deep, deep research and has satellites rotating on planet Earth, taking pictures of Tesla factories, figuring out that there's like untold new resources of battery materials being discovered and Tesla's overproducing cars and population growth is accelerating or, you know, 50 million different things that could be impacting the outlook. And that's what pushed valuations high because now based on the new prices, we still think it's going to re- return 10% per year or whatever. And so, no, I don't stray from my strategy. I just stay the course and bonds have been really unpopular and they're kind of unpopular now, but it's one of those things like, you know, as soon as all of pop culture, I should say is sure that one thing is true, like the opposite is about to be true. Like a few years ago, I remember gas or oil was like extremely cheap. It was like $30 a barrel. Russia had just discovered like huge amounts of, you know, this was before the Russia thing, obviously. Russia discovered huge amounts of like new oil reserves. The US was like doing fracking. It was suddenly going to be like oil independent. In response, the Saudis were like flooding the market with oil. Every single like indication in the world was that like oil was just going to be just flooding the market and going to be cheap forever. And I was like, you know what? When everyone's so sure about something, the opposite's about to be true. And sure enough, I think at the time of for like I bought, I mean, this is this goes opposite to my index fund theory, but I, I bought some like oil futures and just held them for like six months. And sure enough, like oil prices doubled in the next six months because as soon as, as, soon as everyone's sure of something. So, you know, that said, that was like a very rare speculative bet of mine. Mostly I just say, hey, I'm going to buy broad markets hold them for long, long periods and not try to get tricky because it's more likely to hurt myself than help. I like how you mentioned how you stick with your strategy. I think that's one of the most important things, especially for younger investors or millennials, is to just find your tried and true strategy and stick with it. Don't try and chase one shiny object, then go chase another. And you know, if you're going to chase multiple rabbits, you're going to end up catching none of them. So with that, I'm personally someone that likes to take a bit more risk than what others might be comfortable with as I've built a position in Bitcoin over the past few years. Maybe that's because I'm young and just so used to markets always coming back in the Federal Reserve constantly providing liquidity into the markets. And I look at something like bonds today, which you mentioned, the 10-year treasury yield today is around 3% and inflation is currently much higher than that. So anyone that's holding bonds is almost guaranteeing the loss of their buying power currently. And that's something I just tend to personally shy away from, which probably makes sense given my age. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the cases for holding bonds. Is it something that some investors should consider? I mean, you know, if you're under 30 or under 40 and you want to have 0% bonds in your portfolio, like I'm fine with that. Bonds are historically a less volatile asset. So they're not going to drop 50% in value like the market could or like Bitcoin could. And they provide income. And when I'm talking to millennials, millennials often 
feel exactly like you do, which is like, you know, let's cowboy up here and go try to hit a home run. But when I'm talking to like 70 year olds, they very much don't want the $2 million that they've accumulated over the course of their career to turn into $1 million because that would dramatically hurt themselves. And yeah, I get what you're saying. Like at this weird moment and you know, whatever is May of 2022, inflation over the trillion 12 months looks very high and bond yields are very low. But I promise you, if we have this conversation 12 months from now, which invite me back, let's do it. See if I'm right. That's not going to be the case. In fact, like inflation in March was like 1.2% for the month of March. And then in April is 0.3%. And so there's already indications that it's on its way down. Also rates are rising. So it's already an indication that bond yields are probably going to be going up. And so I think in the future, bonds are going to at least match inflation, if not outperform. And so, you know, if I'm talking to someone who's 20, I'm like, yeah, no bonds, like whatever. But if I'm talking to someone who's like 40, 50, 60, 70, I'd say, yeah, keep transitioning slowly towards bonds. And so when you are 65 or 70, and suddenly your risk tolerance is different because you are more concerned about capital preservation and income, having a very healthy portion of bonds in your portfolio makes a lot of sense. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. What would you tell someone like myself that, you know, loves studying the markets and 
loves to kind of dive into different areas, not just the foundational pillars like index funds. Should these types of people only stick, you know, a small certain percentage of their portfolio in these other asset classes or individual stocks or whatever this person might be interested in? Or how should they approach that? So I think what you're describing is like this FOMO, like this risk of, you know, it's boring to be an index fund investor. Like I said, I made, you know, in this crazy market time, I've made zero trades. I never make a trade. I just buy and hold for decades. I mean, over the course of time, it's already made me millions of dollars. And I think will make me many more millions of dollars. But over any given day or week or month, there's zero chance for hitting a home run. Like it's just, I'm just going to get the market returns and releasing the pressure on that FOMO is a real concern. You know, I think if I sit here wagging my finger saying, never make a speculative bet oil futures like I did that one time, I would be being disingenuous. And so I have what I call the 90-10 rule. With 90% of your portfolio, buy and hold index funds. A mix of stocks and bonds based on your age. So, you know, 90 or 100% stocks up until you're 40 or so, then slowly transition towards bonds as you reach retirement or traditional retirement age. And then with the other 10%, go nuts. Whatever, you know, crypto, trade options, Dogecoin, stock picking, whatever it is, oil futures, ARK ETF. I would encourage you if you do this is make a careful measurement of how your 10% performs compared to 90%. I'm sure at some point you'll be up. It's kind of like Vegas. They say like 93% of people are up at some point when they go to Vegas and like 90% of people leave down because just due to the chaotic randomness of whether you're clever or smart or just lucky, you know, you're going to beach the index funds for a little while, but over time, suddenly ARK ETF, when everyone got when it was high, is now down 78% or whatever. It's going to, you know, the pipe is going to come and you're glad that your 90% is still there chugging along, making you wealthy over time. And if you are the next Warren Buffett, if you are God's gift to day trading or whatever, 10% is going to be plenty. Your 10% will make you millions and millions. And then you can donate your 90% to charity because you're such a great trader. One topic I wanted to discuss during this conversation is the topic of life insurance. You know, it's a very important decision that many millennials and listeners of this show is going to need to make at some point in their lives. How do you think about life insurance? Who needs it? Who maybe doesn't need it? Insurance is such a scary word because it feels like a high school homework assignment that was a sign that you never did. And everyone's like, the insurance it's like, oh, like I don't know what insurance is. And I, don't, I don't know if I have the right amount. And I just pay some for something. I don't know what it does. And so, you know, one thing I'd like to start with is like, just first of all, like give yourself a break. There's no perfect insurance portfolio. I think in general, you should like follow the law. Like if you drive a car, you should have car insurance because that's the law. And with regard to life insurance, it's actually very simple. If no one depends on your work to survive, like you don't have kids or a dependent or something like that, it doesn't even necessarily need to be your financial job. Like if you're a stay-at-home parent or something and your spouse works, you know, you're part of that team that's providing for those kids. So if you have kids, you need life insurance because if you were to die, then as much of a tragedy as it would be to, to die early, it would also be a financial mess because your dependents, your kids or whoever would not have enough money to survive. And so if you have kids, you need life insurance. If you don't have kids and if no one depends on your income, so if you're a 25-year-old teacher and you have no kids and don't have like a sick brother or something who depends on your income to live, you don't need life insurance because if you die, no one starves. Like you don't need it. You just absolutely don't. And for example, I don't have kids. I don't have life insurance. Even if I did have kids, I wouldn't have life insurance because I have $4.5 million. If I were to die, my kid would have plenty enough money to make it till they're 18 and 20. There's no need. So the only point of life insurance is to cover that gap until your dependents become no longer dependent and your death is no longer a financial tragedy. That said, if you do need life insurance, you should buy what's called term 
life insurance. Term life insurance covers you for a certain period of years, like 10, 15, 20 years. And then during that time, if you were to die, your beneficiaries get a big payout. So you could buy like a half million or a million dollars of term life insurance for like 15 or 20 years. And then when that 20 year period is up, you're in a situation where you don't need life insurance anymore because your dependents are grown and or you have been investing for 20 years and you're wealthy and then you're now self-life insured where your dependents would just get your, you know, your inheritance when you die. That said, I do want to talk about the other nasty kind of insurance, which is permanent or whole life insurance, which I think you can ask about. Yeah. You know, term life insurance and whole life is probably the two most popular options that I hear about. I used to work in the insurance industry and I'm pretty familiar with how they work. And from my understanding, a lot of people end up going with, you know, 10, 20, 30 year term life insurance policy because with whole life, you're going to receive that death benefit at some point. That means your premiums are going to be a lot higher. So with term, you're only getting coverage for the period you need. And with that, it's going to give you a much lower premium. So is it the lower premium that really kind of pushes you towards recommending term over whole life? Absolutely. So yeah, term is generally dramatically cheaper, like 10 times cheaper. So if you're a young person getting half a million dollars of term insurance, it could be like 30 bucks a month. But the other type of insurance, you know, you call it a whole life, but there's 10 different names for it. But anything that is called like cash value life insurance, permanent life insurance, index universal life insurance, variable universal life insurance, MPI. There's like a dozen different names for this other type of insurance, which lasts your entire life, has an internal cash value that accrues. And basically, in my opinion, all these types of insurances can generally be lumped together as like these tricky rules set by insurance companies to charge consumers a lot more money. And it's true that your death benefit does last forever, but you don't need that. Why would you be paying $500 a month as a young person so you get a death benefit when you're 80? Like you don't need a death benefit. You only need the death benefit when you're when you're young. And if you are investing the difference in premium, you'll be much, much more wealthy because these permanent life insurance policies are riddled with fees and expenses. And, and in fact, like on TikTok right now, there is this like this army of insurance salesmen who are basically using this deceptive marketing technique to lie about the numbers and sell this permanent life insurance. And so what I did is I went on TikTok, clicked on one of their LinkedIn bios and bought the policy. I set through a 90 minute sales pitch. The things that were said, which I recorded with the agent's permission, by the way, but like every word out of his mouth was like just a straight up lie. It was crazy. He was saying that that the insurance policy was going to return 12% per year, which is like more than the underlying index returns. He didn't mention the fees at all. And then when I did the math, 44% of my premium was immediately going to fees. The remaining half or so was then eaten up by underperforming returns. And when you extrapolate this over the course of like 40 years, 82% 82% of the premiums I was, or it underperformed 82% compared to like the underlying index if you were just to buy an index fund. And so the insurance salesmen out there are going to like, you know, whenever I say this, they come after me and they say, oh, it's a different policy or you set it up wrong or then, you know, all this stuff. All I know is like when I see people in the real world with these policies, they're all bad. They're all getting taken advantage of. They all have super high fees. And so if you ever talk to a financial advisor who is recommending that you buy whole life insurance or permanent life insurance as an investment, you're not talking to a financial advisor. You're at an insurance company talking to an insurance salesman. And so you should you know, run, not walk out of there. And so I only harp on this because I see so many people getting taken advantage of it. And so, and again, this is a very specific sales pitch, a very specific kind of like deceptive marketing, but keep your insurance separate from your investing. Your investing should be real estate, stocks and bonds. Your insurance should cover your actual insurance needs like car insurance, term life insurance, homeowner's insurance, just the stuff that if something bad were to happen, you're covered, but you don't need to invest in an insurance policy. 
I like what you said there at the end to keep your insurance and your investments separate. You know, it seems like these people will just overcomplicate things and package these things together and make it almost more complex that the person really can't understand what they're actually buying. And I'd encourage people to just like try and look at the incentive structure. Someone might be really pushing some sort of life insurance policy, but you know, in reality, the reason they're doing this is because they're able to collect these very high fees. And another thing I've seen from these types of policies is that they'll cherry pick data. They might pull like the policies returns from like the year 2000 when the stock market <laughs> right. was like at like a record high. So it looks like, oh, this policy did like really, really well over this time period. Well, that might be yeah. the one year out of the past like 20 years if you would have bought that policy where it might have actually outperformed, but all the other years it was like abysmal. No, that's actually, I wrote an article like the 10 lies told during these insurance sales pitches. And one of them was cherry pick timeframes. And actually I sat through the sales pitch in 2022 and they showed me a chart from like 1998 to 2012 or something like that. I'm like, why are you showing this 14 year old data? And the chart he showed me wasn't even true. It was a lie because it was, it was omitting all the fees they charged. So it showed that the life insurance was outperforming, but he failed to mention that 50% of my <laughs> premium is immediately. So he's just showing after he takes his cut, what the remainder would do, but that's not my perspective. I still lose the money to the fees. And so you're absolutely right. There's all sorts of like deceptive marketing that they do to make it look good, but it's not true. It's not what will happen. So when you start putting money in this thing and five years later, you check, you're like, I put $20,000 in this insurance policy and now it's worth $10,000. Like that's a bad return. Like that's not good. You lost half your money. Yeah. From some of the people I've spoke with that I trust, a good rule of thumb is to just not mix your investments and your insurance policies. So let's transition to talk a little bit more about retirement and financial independence. The 4% rule has been popularized in the FIRE movement as playbook to retiring with a portfolio of stocks and bonds that you can live off of. It seems like stocks nowadays have increased uncertainty with you know things like I was mentioning earlier, the higher interest rates and the higher inflation. And it can make me at least naturally feel a bit uneasy in regards to our finances in the near term, at least. So I'm curious, what are some ways in which we can increase the certainty that we will have enough money come retirement time? Say, if someone wants to retire you know, one or two years from now, how might they be able to you know, better prepare themselves to make sure they have enough money? So first of all, there is no certainty in this world. We're all Every all seven or eight billion of us are all marching forward without knowing what you know. The, an asteroid could hit the planet tomorrow and take it all out, and four percent is not going to mean four percent or hundred percent or nothing. It's not going to mean anything. And so you know, we're, we're all just trying to like learn lessons from the past to give us the best chance going forward. That said, earlier in our conversation, you said the market's been returning thirteen percent for thirteen years or whatever, and now you're saying, oh, four percent seems risky. And so the reason the four percent rule exists is because it just looked at historical volatility of the markets, bond rates, inflation, and said, okay, you can't depend on 10 or 13% because in bad years, you might go broke because the market might be down for a couple of years in a row. And if you're taking 13% and the market's flat for five years, you could bankrupt yourself. But also 1% is too low. With 1%, you could just put it under your mattress, take out 1% per year and spend it for 100 years. That's ignoring inflation, but more or less. you know. And so they said, okay, what's the number? And the number is 4%. And so you, you say, what can you do? I'd say 4% is like a pretty good rule of thumb. By the way, if you're curious what the 4% rule is, it's basically saying what percent of your portfolio can you withdraw every year and even adjust up for inflation every year and be very unlikely to never actually bankrupt your nest egg. And again, like if the next 100 years of the market are dramatically worse than anything we've ever seen before, that's not going to work. But you know, nothing will work then, right? You know, we've got a different set of problems. And the other thing I'd say is 
retirement is like, especially early retirement is never done in a vacuum. I think people early on have this like idea that when I turn 45, I'm going to retire. My income is going to go to zero for the rest of my life. I'm going to start withdrawing money like a robot out of my account with my eyes and ears closed. And I hope when I'm 65, I didn't hit a brick wall. Like that's not, you know, you're going to live those years between 45 and 65 and you're probably not going to have zero income because people who retire early, like I retired at 36, a couple of years later, I was like, I'm bored out of my mind. I'm going to start a hobby. And then a year and a half after that, I was like, this hobby is going really well. Like, it's going to become a business. And then I'm like, oh, shit, I made more in the first week of my business than I made the first three years of my like my last career. And so, you know, and you can react. Like if you're withdrawing $100,000 a year and there's been five years bad, five bad years of the market, and you're like, no, the 4% rule from seven years ago said I can take 100,000. Like maybe you're going to take 90,000 that year. Maybe you can take 80, you know, or you're going to be like, oh, my portfolio is up 5X, like 100,000 is easy. And so, you know, it's not done in a vacuum. I think 4% is conservative. The creators of that rule came out and said that like it's actually more like 4.5 or 5%. And the older you get, the bigger the number gets, right? If you're like 70, 4%, you can start doing 10 or 15%. Like as you know, even if you do 10%, you can add 10 more years plus the growth of the market, which is probably good for 20 years or something. And that takes you to 90. So yeah, that's what I'd say. I just say, you know, it's the four percent rule is designed to be like a modest rule so that in the good years you're not taking all 13%. In the bad years you can live off of the last decade. Yeah, we recently had Nick Majuli on our podcast. He had a book called Just Keep Buying. And he mentioned that a lot of retirees that have these nest eggs saved up, you know, they're not even pulling the principal because their portfolios are doing so well. Now, in preparing for retirement, there are a number of different options or accounts that people can invest in. So I'm curious if you could walk us through your steps or order of operations people should consider when they're investing. As you know, you know, there's all these different types of accounts we can invest our money. What are the types of accounts we should look to invest in first? Sure. So whenever I get technical, I always like to remind people of two things, the two rules of building wealth. Rule number one is live below your means. And rule number two is invest early and often. And that's it. If you spend less money than you make and you invest the difference over time, you'll be wealthy. And all the specifics, we get back into fine-tuning space. And like that's cool. And like people who are listening to the show are here for a reason because they probably like the stuff and they want to talk about the fine-tuning. But it's important to remember that there's no perfect answer. Like no one out there is like, I have never made a mistake with money. And I've like, you know, like perfect investing would be like buying and selling options on every intraday dip and high and you'd be more rich than Jeff Bezos in you know three hours or something. Like that doesn't exist. So so we just have to like go with these rules of thumbs. That said, my rule of thumb for investing accounts is the first thing you do is you invest in your 401k up to your company match. If your company is giving you a match, that's free money. It's an instant 100% return over the matches. There's no market conditions. There's no debt situation. There's no rising rates or anything that's going to make 100% instant return a bad deal. Even if you were to turn around the next day and like pay the tax and penalty and take it all out, you'd still get like 50% free money. You know, you'd always do that. So the second best account is actually the HSA, the health savings account. This is only assuming that you already have a health insurance plan that is HSA compatible. But the reason is the HSA is the only account with a triple tax benefit, which is money goes into a tax-free, money grows tax-free, and you can actually spend money out of a tax-free on qualified medical expenses. But no other tax advantage account has that triple tax benefit. And so every single year, I max out my HSA. I keep a few thousand bucks in cash and the rest I invest in a target date index fund and let it grow for decades. Number three is the Roth IRA. So if you can do a Roth IRA or a backdoor Roth IRA, 
I like the Roth IRA before going to your 401k because it offers generally lower fees and unlimited investment options. Step number four is going back to your 401k and filling it up. By the way, the, the HSA, I think can put in like 3650 as an individual. Roth IRA, you can put in 6000 So this is like a waterfall. You just fill up these accounts in order. And then your 401k or 403b or TSP or 457 or whatever your employer offers, if any, you can put up to $20,500 in and Again, if you can't do any of these steps, you just skip it. And if you filled out that, then step number five is a good old fashioned tax brokerage account, which is just like a regular account, like your checking account or your savings account, except you invest inside of it. And sometimes people get so fixated on this like Roth IRA fancy term because it sounds cool and it sounds complicated. And they ask me, can I invest more than $6,000? And the answer is, yeah, you can invest trillions of dollars. There's no limit. You can invest unlimited money, but just how much you can fit into these special tax savings accounts is lower. And so me personally, about 95% of my portfolio is in a regular taxable brokerage account. I wish I could put it all on the tax advantage accounts to save on taxes, but I sold a company when I was 34. And so I made two or three million bucks all at once. And so I couldn't fit it all in. And so therefore, most of it just sits in the taxable brokerage account. But that's fine because it still grows. It still is relatively tax efficient as far as taxes go because you're paying long-term capital gains tax on index funds, which is actually zero for your first 80,000 or something like that. So yeah, that's the steps. Go through those, fill those accounts in order and don't sleep on the taxable brokerage account. I 100% agree. And I think another important thing that people should consider is that us millennials, we enjoy our freedom and flexibility. And I just realized that you're on the higher end of the millennial generation's age range, and I'm actually on the lower end. And you know, if someone only has ten or $20,000 they can invest, then following that sort of formula, pretty much all of that would be going towards your retirement accounts. And you wouldn't be able to draw on those until you're 59 and a half years old. So I think that's another thing that people should consider. You know, Do they want to tie up all their money if that's all they have? Have to invest? Should they be tying that all that up into the tax, the retirement accounts, or should they maybe allocate some portion of that to the taxable brokerage? Because that gives them a little bit more freedom and flexibility with their money and being able to pull from it if they maybe decide to prior to that age. So, for what's worth, I don't blame someone for wanting to like put some money in the taxable brokerage account like ahead of schedule, but. I don't think that you should. And I'll tell you exactly why, because I get this question all the time. I don't want to wait till I'm 59 and a half. I want to retire early. I want the more flexibility. I want to you know, have so much money that I can retire and not wait, have not have it all locked up till I'm 59 and a half. And I love that question because it's like ambitious people who probably are going to retire early. But here's the thing. I've never actually seen that problem in real life. I've never seen someone who's like 45 or 40 or 35 or whatever and says, I have so much money. I have millions of dollars that I can retire early. But now I have to keep slogging the work because it's all in a tax advantage account. That doesn't happen. In real life, once people start advancing their careers and they make so much money, they naturally, that waterfall naturally starts overflowing, just like it did for me. Obviously, mine was a little bit weirder because I sold a company, but you know, it naturally starts overflowing into the taxable brokerage account. And so you most likely will have plenty of money in a taxable brokerage account later. So when you're young and have this massive power of compound growth ahead of you, get that tax, like just cram as much as you can in those tax advantage accounts. That said, there's five taxable brokerage accounts is one way you can access money early. There's five other ways you can access money early. I'll break them down right now. Number two is real estate. Most people who retire early and are rich have money in real estate. It's generally not in a tax advantage account. So there's number two. Number three is Roth IRA principal. If you put money into a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k, you can take that money you put in out whenever you want. That's like tax-free, penalty-free. So for example, if you are putting 6,000 bucks a year in for 10 years at 60,000 bucks, you can take all 60,000 bucks out and like go buy yourself a Tesla or something. I don't think 
you should, but you can. Number four is a Roth conversion ladder. And so if you have a bunch of money, like let's say you have 2 million bucks in a 401k and you're like, oh no, I'm in money jail. My money's locked up. You can convert that to a Roth IRA. And then five years later, everything that's converted, you can take it all out tax penalty free and spend 100% of it. And so a ladder is what you do is like five years before early retirement, you start converting a little bit each year. And then that's, and you do just a little bit to minimize your taxes because there's, you pay tax when you go from traditional to Roth. And then when that money converts, you can spend it. And then the next year, you spend the next year. And so this is just a way to access all of your money tax penalty free before you're 59 and a half. Rule number four is the rule of 55. So if you happen to retire at 55 instead of 59 and you just want to quit your job, there's just the government says, all right, you quit your job at 55. You can have free access to your 401k. And way number six is what's called the rule of 72T, which says if you make equal periodic withdrawals from retirement accounts, you can retire early. And this is just like literally a law that says you can take your money out early as long as you do it in regular intervals and not just all at once to buy a boat. And they do that to prevent people from like squandering their retirement. And so basically, if I just talk too much and too fast, the point is there's all sorts of ways to get to this money. And so I encourage young people, yeah, prioritize those tax advantage accounts because it could save you like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in taxes and the flexibility will be there when you need it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, 
back to the show. I actually didn't know about those last two roles. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. I'm going to have to go back to your articles and uh, reread those and re-listen to this podcast to make sure it really soaks in and maybe up you should some do a deep my, dive uh, on rule 72 T. It's, I mean, it's just one of those roles that's out there. And like I said, I think there's this like fear of being locked up. But once you get there, you know, you're going to have a CPA because you're going to be rich and he's going to be like, oh yeah, here's, here's how I get your money. It's just really not that big of a deal. I also wanted to discuss some of the things you're up to today. In the past, you created and ran a software company for a number of years, and then you ended up retiring, starting Personal Finance Club to help educate individuals on building wealth and improving their finances. So I'm curious, is your focus nowadays on Personal Finance Club or do you have other things in the works? You mentioned pre-show that you're uh, making the trip to Europe. So obviously you're doing some fun things as well. Yeah. I mean, I still primarily am trying to like maximize my life enjoyment. When After I retired for a year, I played video games and traveled and just had fun and played StarCraft 2. I am not good at StarCraft 2. You know, I got okay during that year. And basically after that year, I was kind of like, you know, rubbed my eyes. I was like, what did I just do? Like, what is Like, what am I now? And, you know, and when I sold my company and when I retired, it was like this very exciting time. And I was like an important person and had a cool story. But then I realized like, is that going to be my legacy forever? Like, am I going to just be a dude that sold a company in his thirties and then his fifties is still playing video games or whatever, you know, I got so lame. And and this is kind of like the nature of life is that if you're not currently striving towards a goal, it feels very empty. And I think that's why maybe you see a lot of like trust fund babies have like depression or behavioral or drug problems or whatever, because they, for whatever reason, they haven't been having to struggle. And I don't like mean to like idolize struggle or whatever, or, or you know, glorify struggle, but there should be like, in my opinion, like a tension in your life or a goal you're working for towards. And so, yeah, after I stopped playing video games, I started Personal Finance Club just as a hobby. I just wanted to just do it because I like it. And then almost two years later, it kind of became a, a small business. I also have like another side hustle tech company that you know my buddy and I started. And then three friends, I actually joined three friends last year to start another tech company, which is a machine learning tech company. And I was doing that for almost a year and it just ended up being too much. And I just remember my friends would ask me to golf or hang out or play volleyball. And I couldn't because I was like trying to start two companies at the same time. And I like went to those guys and said, like, I think this company is probably going to do really, really well, but like, it's just not good for my life. And so I left, but I'm still an advisor and still support. So basically this was like a very droning on answer, but I'm just trying to optimize my life happiness, which involves fun things. Like I'm flying to Portugal tomorrow to hang out with a friend, but also I like working and I like building something. I like seeking a goal. And so, and my just hobby, the fun thing that I like doing is helping people with personal finance and investing, which is why I do this. You mentioned that you have a net worth or portfolio of $4.5 million, which, you know, just running some quick math on the 4% rule, that's approaching $200,000 per year in annual income if you were to pull 4% of your portfolio per year. So being someone that's still in the front end of my career, and you know, I recently just switched jobs from the insurance field to the podcasting education space. So I'm curious how your money views have maybe changed over the years. Are you as strict now about budgeting and investing as you used to be? Because you know, it doesn't seem like that wouldn't be as big of a priority for you now. Yeah, you know, I'm not, but it took several years to sink in. As a bit of background, when I was growing my company, my max take-home salary was $36,000 a year. I was the lowest paid employee. That's what I took home, 3000 bucks a month. I lived in high cost of living San Diego. I had roommates. I drove a 99 Ford Explorer that I paid $3,000 cash for. I was like 
frugal by necessity because my company never took any venture capital and I was a software engineer. And so I was just trying to like do all the technology to grow the company, then hire people to fill in all the rest of the roles and eventually hire more engineers and stuff. And so then when I became a multimillionaire, literally in a moment when I like clicked to refresh my bank account, like it looked like a big number. And I should probably think of some specific examples. There's a lot of examples like in the first couple of years where I would not spend money. I was like still like, you know, it was my entire life, I had been doing that. Like I would like a hundred dollar expense. I would like painstakingly do research for two weeks or if I should spend this hundred dollars or whatever. And now that's, you know, I sold in 2014. Now it's 2022. So now it's eight years behind me. And it's starting to like, it's worn off basically. And I was like, Oh, I could basically spend whatever I want, you know, and that doesn't change the number. Like, you know, a 1% change in the market cost me what, $45,000 or something like that. And so if I spend $100 on dinner, you can't even see it in the turmoil of the market volatility. But over time, the market keeps going up and it's been a generally good last eight years, of course. And so yeah, now I'm a little bit more chill. Um, I think I spend like 60000 a year. So I'm not taking that 200000 out. Also, because like I think I could, but I don't need it. And I don't think that's going to really make me any happier. And I am still 41. So like, I hope I've got another 41 or 50 years of life left. And so I still consider myself in the wealth building portion of my career. So yeah, I'm a little more chill, but I haven't gone crazy. I drive a 2016 Mazda now. I live in a two-bedroom condo, which is very, very nice. And I'd say, you know what? And you're not optimized for two things. I think this is like, this is where it gets cerebral. This is what we always want to like build wealth. And I think a lot of people think when you like make a lot of money, you are automatically happy, but that's not really true. I think what I think life is all about is about being happy and helping people. And that's what I strive for. And when you have a lot of money, that doesn't automatically happen. Like when you get a lot of money, you're not happy. If you have bad friends and bad relationships and you're a depressed person, then you get a lot of money. Maybe you'll be more depressed because you'll realize, you know, your friends weren't really there for you or whatever. So, you know, money can kind of make you a, an exaggerated version of who you already were. And so, you know, you have to like seek happiness on your own through your relationships and your activities and your health and all that stuff. And then the other thing I try to do is help people. And I just think that's what life is all about. And so that's what I try to optimize for these days. I love that. And I remember seeing your posts about your uh, progression of the cars you owned over the years. And you also mentioned your uh, two bedroom condo that you're sitting in right now. I'm curious if you ended up just paying that off for the extra financial security or what path you went on with that. Well, so when I sold my company, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment that was a garage, a covered garage owned by my friends. And so I was basically living in my friend's garage. I lived there for six years, including like four or five years after I sold the company. And then I finally decided to upgrade and I found this place. So my net worth around that time was, I think like 3.8 or 4 million. And I wanted to spend like 600,000 on a place, which was like, you know, 20% or something. And so I found this place and it was 700,000. I was like, oh, it's a little bit over my budget, but whatever, I can afford it. So I decided to go for it. And then I was like, all right, how am I paying for this? Am I going to get a mortgage? Like I could just sell some shares of stuff and buy it in cash, or I could get a mortgage. And I, I struggled with the decision personally. And I decided finally to get a mortgage. I was like, you know what? I'll put 50% down and I'll get a 50% mortgage just as a way to kind of diversify my assets out of this single home. You know, if 20% of my whole assets are in one condo in San Diego, California, that's like having a mortgage provides some leverage. So I can use that those very low interest rates at the time, which are now rising and have some diversification. And so it was this guy who was like an acquaintance of mine who had been hounding me for years trying to like sell me a loan. I like, you know, he's like a friend of a friend. I was talking to him at a party. He's like every few months, he's like, hey, you buying a place, whatever. So I finally like, triumphantly email him and say, Hey, guess what? I'm buying a place. It's 700,000. I want to put 50% down. So I need a loan for 350. My net worth is 3.8 million. 
I haven't had a sub $100,000 tax year on my taxes in like 10 years. Because despite my take home being 36,000, my business has already like had flowed through profits under my taxes. So from a tax perspective, I'd always been a very high income earner, especially the recent couple of years when I had a you know a real job after I sold my company. But at this point, I had quit my job. And so then this guy asked me for like thousands of documents. And I actually had already put the offer in on the place. I put it as an all cash offer with the option to finance. And I was like, oh, I'll just get a, go get a loan real quick in a week or two, and then it'll be fine. So like two weeks drags on, after he asked me for a million documents. And then he says, because you don't have any income, you don't qualify for any loan whatsoever. And from that day until the current day, which was three years ago or something, dude has never talked to me again. And so I was like, what? You're not going to give me a $350,000 loan into a $3.8 million net worth. And so I was like, all right, I'm just writing a check. And so I just wrote a check for $700,000 and just bought it in cash. And so I was like, I don't need banks in my life. And it's like, it's just such a funny view of the banking industry because, like, if I was a teacher making $80,000 a year in San Diego, which is like, you know, what teachers make here, 70 or 80,000, like, I'm sure they would have given me the loan. They would have loved to lock a teacher in that loan for the next 30 years and just suck them dry for 30 years of interest. But for a dude that could pay off in, in six months, which I probably would have done by the way, because like probably six months later when all my stocks were way up, I was like, Ooh, I just, I just made that 350 in six months. I'm probably going to cash out and have no loan. They didn't want to do business with me. So I bought in cash. Well, Jeremy, before I let you go, I wanted to give you a chance to, you know, give the handoff to our audience, let them know where they can find you and get connected with you. Yeah. So the thing I do now is called Personal Finance Club. I help people with personal finance and investing. Most of the action is currently happening at Instagram at Personal Finance Club, where I have like 380,000 followers. I also have a TikTok, Personal Finance Club, a website, personalfinanceclub.com. And there's like a start here video series that's free, no email required. If you want to like walk through the basics of index fund investing. Um, Yeah. That's where you find me. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeremy. I really enjoyed the convo. Thanks, Clay. It was an honor. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.